You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Join us on your favorite show, Legal Talk. And Alhamdulillah, Legal Talk this evening has uh, one of our favorites and uh, someone I look forward to having on this platform, our very own uh, attorney, Hafiz Muhammad Kubadia, someone uh, that is, uh, mashallah, doing his dawah work and he's a fraternity. He's well known. I talk to anyone. They say, oh, oh yes, you're talking about Attorney uh, Kovadia, I said, yes, sir. He said, oh, well-known, uh, very honest man, and so forth. MashaAllah, you know what? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, it's, it's, uh, one of the things in life is when your izzat is kept intact, and it takes you a second or a split, a split second, and you can lose it. So, alhamdulillah, we hope and pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala keeps the reputation for his pleasure. And whatever we do, maybe do it in a manner that pleases Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala most uh, Attorney Hafiz Muhammad Kubadia, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And Jazakallah khair for joining us once again on the, from the Madka Sahaba, the voice of the Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. And I can tell you, you add value to Islamic broadcasting also. Hi, doing this beautiful evening, uh, uh, Hafiz. Uh, Assalamu alaikum. Wa, wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. It's always a pleasure with you, to be with you, Shafat, especially on this beautiful evening and also with the warm welcome and the reception that we're getting from our KZN hosts makes us feel warm and lovely this beautiful evening. So once again, Jazakallah for having a humble soul like myself on your show. Well, I'll tell you something. Brilliant indeed. He that humbles himself will be elevated, but he that elevates himself will be humble. And uh, yes, attorney Saab, yeah, mashallah will always be someone that will be elevated. Amin, Asuma, Amin. Now, uh, you know, let's look at what's happening. The reality of the situation is, uh, you know, man is uh, sinning against his intelligence. Uh, man, I'm talking about those that are for and those are that are against. And, you know, the saying of Shakespeare, look like the innocent flower, but be the serpent beneath it. And all these things come to the fore when we look at uh, what is happening there in Palestine. You know, it's a, it's heart-wrenching. And I think people of your profession also, uh, you know, making a big noise, uh, uh, you know, Hafiz uh, Muhammad uh, Kuvadia, attorney Saab. Uh, what's your thoughts and uh, what goes through your mind when you watch these uh, vivid happenings? And, you know, by the way, the algorithms have turned in favor of uh, the uh, Muslim opinion. And it is the Muslim influences that are making a bigger impression and those are lying, you know who I'm talking about. Go ahead, uh, Tony. Gee, so, you know, there's so many aspects to look at this dilemma that we have in our middle, in the Middle East. And for me and you, Shafat, it's something that we are experiencing since the time we were born. We were born into a time where our Muslim brothers were already being oppressed. And no matter what the world, what challenges, what, how, even senior people like Tutu and Mandela and these people tried as best to vocalize their sentiments and their opinion. They were somehow ignored, stifled and just uh, abandoned. But the reality of the situation is that once again we are in the midst of a holocaust against the Muslims, carpet bombing, what, what the terms that we are hearing, our heart bleeds for Palestine. When we go to Masjid al-Aqsa, it is some semblance of the fight that these people are going through their whole lives. We only see a tip of the iceberg and yet we become so dismayed and so disappointed. Imagine what it is like being a Gazaian, being a, a West Bank citizen, having your whole life being under the oppression, 
being under the miserable government of oppressions that they have seen. And to, just to think that these were once guests in your country less than 100 years ago. You allow them to practice their religion. You allow them to live like human beings. And today, there are those that were minority, have overpowered the majority, and they have garnered the support of everybody around the world, everybody around the world, so much so that even as Muslim countries and Muslim leaders, we don't know where they stand in this whole conundrum. The situation seems so meek and so dire. But notwithstanding that darkness, notwithstanding all of that, we know that we have Allah, we have Tawheed, we have Iman. And our brothers, they are not dying in vain. They're not giving up their lives, not getting maimed, not getting injured and hurt for no reason. They are doing it because they wish to earn the pleasure of Allah. They are doing it so that Islam can be on top. They are doing it for the preservation of life and family. And we have to take our hats off to them. We have to admire what they are doing because it is through their efforts that today the third haram, one of the most important relics sites for us as Muslims is being protected by those who can afford to protect it. And we wonder about our own condition. Had we been born, born in another part of the world, what would our strength have been? Could we even begin to imagine how much valor and courage it takes to stand up against the oppressor every day? But Allah knows best. Our support goes out to the people of Palestine. Our support goes out to the women and children and to every person that's living in that oppressive regime, to every person that's suffering at the hands of the world leaders today. We can only make dua and do what we can in our own uh, meager and, 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 and personal way. But yes, the situation at the moment, we're having the discussion, but as we can sit here in the comfort of our homes, our thought and our hearts go out to our brethren in that part of the world, Shafat. Jazakallah, hey, Ryan. You know, I don't know if you noticed how relevant uh, Sheikh Ahmad Didat was when he spoke about Arab Israel and the people that made a four minutes uh, clip. Did I send it to you? I don't know if I sent it to you. But what he said there was so relevant, and, you know, people were sending it to me hundreds at a time. And I laughed because of Muhammad, I happened to be at the Good Hope Center, you know, when Paul Finley was down here, and the topic was, is Israel set up for destruction? And I smiled to myself, and I said, that was in 1989, you know, being with Sheikh Ahmadi, that uh, uh, the uh, Good Hope Center was uh, known as a white elephant then. And I think I told you this, the manager asked me, who is this uh, gentleman uh, that you have come with? Because uh, I said, why you want to know? He said, you see, this place was a white elephant, and with him coming here, he filled it up with 10,000 people. And, you know, that evening, so well documented. And I kept on telling uh, the individuals at the IPCR, when Ahmad that brought in that competition of the Interfather, when he uh, conscientized not only South Africans, but the whole world, you should have a whole corner dedicated to that, what that had done. But conveniently, these people had forgotten. Uh, Muhammad, what's your thoughts on that? I mean, it's such an important issue. It's an issue that is, uh, you know, it's so, in the, it's, it's like... Uh, in the, the, the hearts of the Muslims, it's a very sore point. Um, and also, it actually uh, unfolds a lesson for us where the hypocrites uh, come to the fore and you either take sides, you either, you know, for, you're against it. And in the case of uh, the Muslim leadership, right near 
the uh, Palestinians right near the Gaza Strip doing absolutely nothing when thousands of babies and literally and men, women and children being, uh, you know, brutally murdered, uh, Mohammed. I must be honest with you, I may have received the clip from you. I've received hundreds, if not thousands of clips in the last week, and it's impossible. Sometimes some of these clips you can't even get past five five seconds because it's so heart-wrenching to see dead bodies, to see the janazas, to see the, the rubble, to see the destruction in these towns. So yes, what I do remember of Sheikh Ahmed Didat and what he did speak about is that they are in a cursed nation, and he quoted verses of the Bible that spoke about seven generations down the line, they will be accursed for their sins and they're turning away from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yes, and I do remember that Sheikh Hamadidat had written a book which I read many years ago about the Arab and Israeli conflict. And I think, you know, um, Allah gave him some sort of vision about where we, some of the things that we will even experience after his passing away. And he was, you know, in that regard, highly respected across the world because he took things and he made us, he opened things up for us as simple people to look at and to understand. And those were the years of Yasser Arafat. Those were the years of the Intifada. And the struggles were different, you know. Um, we, we, the Muslims already in the early years um, were, were fragmented in many ways. And, you know, the, the regime that, that continued to oppress the Muslims seem to be gathering support and getting stronger over the years. And it's unfortunate so much so that we've seen things happen like the Abrahamic Accord. Detestable, you know. We see things happening where uh, Muslim countries are allowing them uh, certain civil liberties, opening up of embassies, granting of visas, and even then at the end of the day, giving them an, an opportunity to come and promote their party and to come and to promote their apartheid, uh, apartheid regime uh, mechanisms, or rather to have it, you know, uh, in Muslim countries, to bring it into these Muslim countries. And the Muslim countries are now powerless to, uh, unfortunately, for us as Muslims. So where's the teeth? Where's the armory? Where's the finances and the money that we thought that the oil and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had given us over the years? Because... At the end of the day, we're like a toothless lion in the face of an onslaught, and we can, we can, we physically see the death, the destruction, and the carnage on our phones every day, and yet we feel that we're just a sleeping giant, something that you know has absolutely no value for us as an ummah. At the end of the day, Shafat. I recall that book, uh, Arab-Israel conflict or reconciliation. Guess who edited that book, uh, Muhammad? I'll give you... Uh, it's your tr- yours truly, without a doubt. Shafat, Hazrat <laughs> Shafat Khan. Allah Akbar. You know, I-, I remember, he used to call me home. I used to go to Bellum, and you know, when I walked in, the old man used to tell me, Harlan wa Sahlan, my son, come better, come better. What lovely welcomes I used to get. And I used to eat, uh, you know, lunchtime, he used to uh, generally call me into the office, and he used to give me this big cucumber to eat, and he had one for himself. He said, bite it now. I said, hey, but you know, we know we like the refined, like chopped up. He said, no, this is how you eat and this is what you do. Lots of memories coming through there. And, you know, the, the, the point uh, you're making, uh, Muhammad, is, uh, is a very valid point indeed. And as you said, as we move on, I was uh, the other day uh, talking to a, uh, a, a brother who's in the legal field too. And he said, uh, you know, Chef, next time when you're on air with the attorney, uh, 
uh, Kuvadia, I mean, you're well known. He says, please ask him uh, and uh, ask him to tell the Muslim. A lot of Muslims are, you know, still very stubborn. They are not making their will. And he must actually tell the Ummah on the platform, if you do not make a will, what will W-I-L-L happen to uh, to the individual or to his family? I mean, it will be suffering all over. I mean, it will, uh, one of the things I know for a fact, it will take years and years to wind up the will, uh, uh, Muhammad. Uh, I think, you know, we'll give you the opportunity to conscientize us. Bismillah. Well, I hope uh, we haven't uh, lost our attorney there. And uh, we'll Gee, once out. again, I'm here, Shafat. Sorry, just uh, okay. gremlins in the system. No, no, okay. I'm here. So, Shafat, yes, thank you for the opportunity then to have this introduction into the topic of wills. And I think not only from a legal perspective, let's start with bringing things in from the Sharia perspective. Surely, Islam requires of us to prepare a will. And the purpose of preparing the will is that it sets out so many things that the testator wishes to do or have done after his death. So, for example, in my estate, if I have a liability that I haven't yet fulfilled, as whilst I record my will, I should then make it a point of mentioning that as today, the 20th of October 2023, I owe ABC 50,000 rand. So, upon my death, and Allah knows best, Nobody knows, the Quran says, Allah says, that nobody knows in which part of the world he will pass away. And that is so relevant and so uh, reminiscent of how we should be living our life, that we could, our whole life, we could assume and believe that we are healthy and we're strong. Yet healthy and strong people die of heart attacks, collapse on the side of the road, are involved in accidents, plane crashes, we Allah knows best. So we in our f uh, finite and very uh, very temporary existence, we have to be cognizant of the fact that we are here today and gone tomorrow. Look at the plight of the people of Gaza. A month ago, they would not even in their wildest dreams imagine that they would be losing family members and friends and neighbors and community members in a matter of days their whole lives will be turned around. Who's going to survive and who's not going to survive? Allahu A'lam at the end of the day, only Allah knows best. So yes, we should conscientize ourselves. We should be reminded of the fact that if we have something to bequeath, the Prophet actually tells us that we should two nights should not pass until the world should be prepared. And there are so many things regarding a world that we could have a discussion about uh, in, in, in tonight's discussion that, you know, just let me know what is it that you feel is important for us to discuss and we could go into the discussion, Shafat. No, absolutely. And this is what you call a genius at work with me. He knows. Bring it on, he's saying. Bring it on, Shafat. Now, you know, there's just a perception if you don't have your will and you don't have uh, everything well made. And, you know, Islamically, you know, everything is there. But I'm talking about the stubborn O's, you know, the stubborn O's. If they, uh, you know, if they if they didn't make a will. So my belief, uh, Muhammad, is uh, that uh, it will be distributed according to the South African law and not according to your wishes. Even your Islamic uh, wishes won't, uh, won't be entertained. That means uh, you, uh, people will inherit something with the state will uh, decide. Am I correct in my assumption there, Muhammad? 
Shafat, you know, they say the mechanic's car never runs. So uh, that attorney that advised you, the legal advisor, you should have asked him, brother, is your world now done? Because it's something that you're conscientizing everybody else. We should start with ourselves. Yes, very true. Shafat, it seems that you've been listening very carefully in the last couple of years that we've been having a discussion because now you're asking the questions and you're capable of answering the questions at the same time. So the day the student becomes the teacher is the day I'll have to retire and it looks like I'll have to look forward to a nice, fun-full retirement on the shores of, of, of the, the KZN Indian region. Ocean. <laughs> Come to the Indian Ocean and there'll be a motion for you, Mohammed. Go ahead, brother. <laughs> Fortunately, it's the Indian Ocean. You know, imagine if it was the European Ocean, we would have had some problems. We need a visa to get into the water there. But Alhamdulillah, Allah has made it so easy for the Indians on top of everything else that we're able to swim from here to India without even a visa. So, Shafat, as we were speaking on a more serious note, I think... Um, Yes, uh, wells do facilitate and tend to streamline the intentions of the testator. Now, just to let everybody know, the person that um, signs a will is called a testator if he's a male or a testatrix. So the deceased person would then, after his demise, his will is then opened up and the, he, him as a testator, a person who declares the contents of the will, is then now, these are some of the legal terms that people would maybe hear me use over the next hour, so they acquaint themselves. So a testator is a person that executes a will. And an executor is a person being appointed in terms of a will generally to execute the wishes of the testator. And in doing so, he's a then able to fulfill the rights, the final rights, the execution, sorry, the burial rights, executing the will, opening up bank accounts, closing up bank accounts, uh, transferring properties, closing up whatever, maybe they sasa, the person's pension, retirement, hospital bills, doctor's bills, all these things he takes care of as part of his function, roles, and responsibilities of winding up an estate. And in a will, there are certain salient and important uh, things, matters that are recorded. One, for example, you generally start by introducing the testator by saying, I, Shafat Khan, identity number, being of sound mind, understanding, capable of carrying out and executing this will. You may also declare that this is your final will and testament in case there's a previous will. And generally, that's the right thing to do, to revoke all previous wills so that there's no confusion um, as to the nature of this particular document. And then you declare this to be your last will and testament. So one of the first things you do is you introduce yourself as a testator. Number two is that you like to appoint a executor or a couple of executors who you believe is capable of understanding what you intend doing after your demise. So, for example, you may have a business that needs to get shut down or transferred to the children. Maybe it's a tire fitment business. So, your executor would generally now assist uh, in disposing of that particular asset on your behalf. So, he needs to know and understand 
what is it that the business is about, what type of turnover, so that he can reach a fair market value. And if he gets a fair market value, he's doing justice to the estate and to the beneficiaries. So, yes, you're not restricted in terms of the law of how many executors you'd like to appoint. You could appoint one, two, three, four, five. Obviously, you don't want to make it too cumbersome. So you would appoint an executor or an executrix in the case of, inf- of a female who then takes up this role and responsibility after your death and then continues to work in terms of the will. So number three is that you also would like to maybe uh, state what the nature of your assets would be. I have two properties in India, I've got two properties in KZN, and I have a bank account, and these are the complete list of assets. So you'd have that, and then you'd like to say, and this is where, you know, Islamically, we then have to then consider uh, where we stand. Because Sharia-wise, at this juncture, you now then have to subscribe to the Islamic laws of division, and in there you would have a provision that I would like to, I would require that my will be divided in terms of Islamic succession. And to that end, I then propose that the following Islamic institution be authorized to issue with uh, issue my estate with a certificate. So this is what they, the, what then happens is that they go to the local Islamic organization, as mentioned in the well and he he gets a certificate from the from the mufti and the certificate will then say okay if a person passes away his wife must then inherit one eighth his parents must then inherit one twelfth and the children will then divide it according to the following percentages whatever the situation may be this is islamic laws of succession that come into place and obviously very detailed and expl- and, and ex- explicit to the extent that um, we don't have much leeway in terms of the Islamic laws of succession, except that up to one-third of a person's estate may be donated to a third party who's not a beneficiary. So the masjid down the road, the welfare, the orphanage, there may even be a cousin who's not a beneficiary that struggles and you would assist them from time to time. You may believe that up to one-third of my estate is what uh, they would be, what would help them in the course of their life. So this type of donation and disclosure is required. Now, there may be other things you'd like to put into the world, like collation. So collation is something that you've given your children during the course of their life, and you'd require that they pay it back. So if my eldest son went through university and I assisted him with a, with 100,000 rand for his uh, university fees, I, I say that, you know, upon my death, in, this was a loan, he needs to pay it back so that there can be a quality, equality amongst all my children. Those are some of the discussions you'd like to put in. Also, you may state that should my child get married, uh, for example, in community of property, I declare that my benefit to him is not part, shall not form part of a community of property estate. So in the event where he, my son passes on or gets divorced, his wife and in-laws would not be able to get uh, stake a claim in um, in the assets there. And the legal will, the World's Act requires that the world needs to meet certain legal requirements. So it needs to be signed on every page by the testator. If the testator is unable to sign, then a person who, who's capable of executing a certificate like a commission of votes would then certify, he, he would prepare a certificate to say, that I was present when Mr. X, Y, and Z 
placed his right thumbprint on every page and I certify that he was unable to sign and I certify that this is in fact the right thumbprint. So that type of certificate. So these are legal requirements. Presence of two witnesses, of course, over the ages of 16 who are not beneficiaries, people that will not benefit from your estate. So in other words, if my son is going to be a beneficiary in my estate, I cannot appoint him as a witness because there would obviously be a conflict. Even as an executor, I'm executor shouldn't be a witness uh, to 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 the estate because he receives the benefit in terms of his uh, appointment in terms of the will. So uh, briefly, that gives you an overview. You don't need the services of an attorney, but um, generally you could buy a will from some of the Islamic organizations, and in there they have other provisions to state that my funeral expenses of, must be paid, that uh, my salah, which was not read for so many years, needs to be paid, my hajj needs to be uh, discharged. So you do have certain other conditions generally that can be considered and brought into the world should you so wish to do. And um, it, it does not need the services of an attorney, although, you know, it's always wise to have just just to bounce it off an attorney or see an attorney for 15 minutes and make sure that you've executed it correctly and that the witnesses are competent and they are the right people for the job. So just so that when you pass on, you can't rectify the situation when it's too late, Shafat. Yes, so I've spoken quite a bit and I've given you some food for thought. I hope that you include me in your world now that you are contemplating it very seriously. The full spelling of my name will be WhatsApp to you immediately. Okay, you'll do that. I think it's quite uh, reciprocal. We'll do it for each other. <laughs> Alhamdulillah. But uh, what I want to tell you, you know, uh, people today are divorcing left, right, and center. Some uh, marriages are very short-lived, and, uh, you know, some uh, uh, brothers are just marrying and are divorcing, you know, maybe I don't know what they call that. But what happens, uh, Muhammad, you know, if uh, you have been married and, uh, you know, you're divorced and uh, suddenly you think, oh, it's okay, I divorced that woman. And at that time, uh, when you pass away, the woman decides to go co to court and to contest that. And you'll notice that this man could have divorced three or four or five women. Uh, what happens then, uh, Muhammad? Because, uh, you know, eventually it's going to a uh, uh, to the government court, uh, to a circular court. And... Uh, what happens then? Tell me. Jeez, obviously, you know, when a person passes away, his marital status is a part of his estate. And if he is married, then the nature and the, the marital regime that he's chosen whilst he was alive is applicable. So when generally when you get married, you know, you live your life together with your spouse and the two of you seem to acquire some assets and, you know, you enjoy each other's finances and each other's lifestyle and at the end when you get divorced or you die then there needs to be some sort of a separation of the various estates because uh, now the spouse goes their separate ways and you know there needs to be a total understanding and separation of who owns what so yes um, today you know when a person gets married there is the option Today, uh, whilst, you know, Islamic marriages seem to be going through some sort of uh, change, the best advice I can give is uh, look carefully and understand carefully the marital regime systems. So there is provision now that Islamic marriages, the type of marriages that are generally done in front of the imam previously, can now be registered 
as community of property. If you just take your marriage, Islamic marriage certificate to Home Affairs, uh, and they will be able to register you and issue you with a marriage certificate. And for that purpose, you will be married in community of property. You'll have a, a, a registered and recognized marital regime. But of course, uh, this goes against the what the ulama tell us is the Islamic marital regime system. So what they say is from an Islamic marital regime system, the husband acquires his own assets and his own liabilities, and similarly the wife in a marriage would require would acquire her own assets and her own liabilities. So she may or may not have a business, the husband may or may not have a property, all these things at the time of death or divorce, divorce are actually recorded and, and set aside, then so parties know where they stand. Now, what, upon death, it seems to be, there seems to be less acrimonious than what it is upon divorce. So when a person dies and he's married in community of property, he needs to realize that the house that he thought was his actually belongs to him and his wife in equal shares because they were married in community of property. So that's the marriage, generally the default marriage in the country in community of property. Should you wish to be get married out of community of property, then before you register your marriage with home affairs, then you need to prepare a notarial contract also known as an anti-nuptial contract. And at, uh, in the anti-nuptial contract, you set out that you'd like to be married out of community or property and that your terms and conditions of, of marriage are as follows and you set it out in the document that's executed generally in front of a notary public and registered with the deeds office. So that's marriages out of community or property. So that now then facilitates and identifies how your estate is going to be divided, whether it's death or divorce. Yes, so the difficult subject of divorce we have to consider. Um, a woman from an Islamic perspective by default is entitled to maintenance for the period of her idat. For the time that she sits in idat, she needs to be cared for. And it sometimes may happen that she's also serving her idat period in the household of her husband all these things need to be considered and a husband or his estate needs to make good on that idiot period and for the expenses that she needs to, uh, that she incurs during the course of her idiot. From an Islamic perspective, at the time of the divorce, the husband is obviously responsible for the general maintenance of all children as long as they are incapable of looking after themselves. So I may have a 23-year-old university student's son, and because he's unable to fend for himself financially, there would be a claim against both the spouses. Remember, we're living in an equal society. So if the wife earns more than the husband, she may be liable to contribute more than the husband. If the husband is unemployed, he could very well get away with any maintenance payments. So the courts consider these many factors when considering maintenance orders against the children. One, for example, is what is the standard of living of the family as a whole? So before the divorce, were they the type of family that were going to private schools, eating out every other day, going overseas every year, type of cars that they had in the garage, type of home that they lived in? This will impact a decision on maintenance at a later stage. So it's very hard to say 
whether a judge will grant a maintenance order of 3,000 rand a month per child or 30,000 rand per month per child until all these factors are brought into to the fore. Remember that it's not always necessary for a maintenance officer, a judge to make uh, or a magistrate to make an order regarding the maintenance. This maintenance can be agreed between the father and the mother. So even during, if they are going through formal divorce proceedings, they could have a settlement agreement drawn. And in the settlement, they could discuss many issues, the issue of custody, the issue of access to the children, the issue of maintenance for the children, the issue of proprietary or financial rights and responsibilities, the issue of immovable property. So these issues could be agreed and decided between the spouses and generally it is, you know, if it's fair and acceptable, there would be no issue regarding this moving forward. Regarding finances, a claim for divorced wives in the event of uh, after a divorce. So the courts are very reluctant to make any long-term orders against spouses because they realize that spouses' lives go on they need to get married again and they need to then find their own feet and they need to find a job if necessary to support themselves. So apart from children, um, you know, there could be an order for very limited maintenance until maybe a spouse gets onto his feet. But by and large, there's no lifelong meal ticket for a spouse to believe that he or she uh, uh, unduly from the estate of the other spouse, you know, uh, uh, regular monthly maintenance. Unless, of course, there are circumstances the court will consider that, for example, the wife has sacrificed the whole life in working for the husband, making sure that his business is successful. Uh, you know, if you can convince uh, a judge that you're left with absolutely nothing and that you need more out of the marriage, a judge has the right and the prerogative to make certain extraordinary orders just so that they can seem to be some equity and fairness at the time of the divorce. Jazakallah for that, uh, Muhammad. Absolutely, mashallah. Let's interrogate uh, this uh, scenario here. Instead of, uh, you know, uh, your children receiving the inheritance and it passes on directly to the government, uh, I think they call it the guardian's fund. What happens there in that scenario? How, do it, uh, how does it come to that uh, type of, uh, you know, okay. So, so, so minor children, that children under the age of 18 years old, cannot, cannot acquire any assets in their own name. So whatever they acquire is under the guardianship of their parents whilst their parents are alive. But it may happen that a son, your child, a baby, will inherit a certain amount of money, be it now, say, a monetary amount of 100,000 rand that was in your bank account. But because the minor is unable to now manage that money, and if there was no trust created in favor of the minor, and generally in your world, you create a trust and you say that should any beneficiary be under the age of 18, then I direct that a trust in favor of the minor child be opened and my executor be appointed as a trustee on the following terms and conditions. So you could actually, you will actually create a trust. In that trust, you would set out that for all his educational expenses, for all his travel expenses, for all his marriage expenses, I 
authorize my trustees to release monies as and when, you know, food, clothing, these types of day-to-day expenses as well. A monthly regular stipend is then allocated for the youngster during the course of his life. And you could even stand stipulate at age 18 or age 21 or age 25 or age 40 that my son, that this trust will endure until then and my son would then be able to receive the full proceeds of the money at the at the conclusion of the trust. So yes, uh, a trust is then created. So people need to understand that the guardian's fund is controlled by the state and your funds are locked in and protected, but it becomes more cumbersome to manage because obviously you need to apply for the funds as and when you require the funds and you know it takes a bit of time and processes need to be put in place so to avoid that difficult situation for the youngsters you would create a trust but it does not mean that your funds are forfeited i think sometimes there's a misunderstanding that funds are forfeited generally to the state and you know you will lose your money no no, no. In fact, the money is locked account in a se- locked away in a separate account. Unfortunately, that money bears interest at 4% per annum, if I'm not mistaken, according to the current values, and that money will continue to grow uh, over time. So people need to be wary about these pitfalls when it comes to the guardian's trust, the interest, and making claims against this guardian's trust. But once a child is 18 years old, the child can then claim the balance of the money from the guardian's fund and that money will be released to him. So yes, it's controlled by the state, managed by the master of the high court and it's for the benefit of the public and the benefit of minor children. But people, have you noticed the eagerness in uh, our, you know, attorney Hafiz Mahmoud Kubadia to answer these questions? Allah bless him for that and uh, putting things into perspective. You know, one gets the impression that, you know, ugly feuds uh, that could uh, that could split families could result from, uh, you know, relatives and uh, loved ones fighting over the distribution of uh, the estate and so forth. We've seen homes uh, end up in ruins and so forth. But, uh, you know, is this mostly prevalent amongst the Indian or the Indian Muslims, or is it uh, something that, I mean, I haven't heard of the, you know, perhaps uh, uh, the, the Buros or the Englishmen fighting over estates and all that. Uh, yeah, perhaps you could correct me, uh, Mohammed. Gee, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't limit it to any particular grouping. I think by and large that this is across the board. It can happen across the board. I've seen it happen. I've seen stranger things happen in other communities. I've seen in the black culture that just the place where you bury the person has such relevance. So there was family feuds that the person was unable to get buried because the family home, ancestral home was in one part of the world. The wife, she was living with her husband in another part of the country. And as a result of which now the family then couldn't make an agreement regarding the wife, just regarding a simple thing like burying the deceased, and as a result of which it became acrimonious. The fight started in the mortuary. The government officials didn't know what to do. Their hands were tied. Do we release the body to this family or do we release the body body to that family? Yes, across the body, and it can stem from the funeral. How many funerals we've heard where family members are actually first fighting, first tickets at the cemetery, and we've heard about it. We've probably witnessed it also. 
That happens in our community as well, and I'm sure it happens in other communities as well. Fortunately, I think Islam limits that for us in so many ways. For example, Islam gives us guidelines. When you're going to bury the person, bury him as quick, quick as possible. Don't delay for 10 days and two weeks. Who's going to pay that bill? Look at the costs involved. Look at the mourning. Look at what the family is going through. All these things are considered when a person is buried quickly. Things are, you know, you remove all these obstacles down the line and it's done in a very cost-effective, there's no casket, there's no headstone, there's no unveilings, there's no big lunches and big meals and all these things, uh, or, or rather they shouldn't be on the last couple of items. But nonetheless, these expenses are also limited. And then in terms of who gets what, it's clearly set out. I'm, I, I've been asked to, to, to chair a, a family squabble where certain members of the family have then been accused of not being Muslim. And, you know, this is now something that I have to investigate and, you know, assist in a decision. But it can happen that these things could happen also from a personal personality issue that, you know, you could say that this person doesn't deserve his inheritance for this particular reason. But at the end of the day, Islam and the Sharia has made it simple and made it clear that there are particular guidelines and there are fixed percentages that needs to be considered that is not negotiable. So in other words, a person passes away and he's got two wives and each wife will receive 6.25% of the inheritance, whether it's wife number one or wife number two, whether she's been with him for two months or for 20 years, whether she's to rub his feet at night or whether she is to ignore him. This is the reality that Islam has set out for, for in terms of percentages for all the beneficiaries. And yes, uh, I would think and I would hope and I would pray that because there is so little to fight about, that our Muslims are not so divided as they used to be. In fact, I've recommended many a times, see, your mom is going to inherit 12.5% in your father's estate and it, it may be difficult for her to live off 12.5%, you as a son, is it not possible that you can contribute from your inheritance to the mom? An extra 50 or 100,000 went into her account from your inheritance share, just so that she can continue to live and to have uh, hold her head upright in the community and not to become dependent on anybody. Yes, without a doubt, I've seen it happen. And I think that there's goodness in everybody. Sometimes you just need to approach Approach things with the correct attitude, and I believe that we there is more good than evil in us as people, number one, and more so as Muslims. We do know that we are just temporary caretakers of everything that's in our name, and one day we have to let everything go, and we take nothing with us when we go, and we're answerable to Allah for everything that we had in our care and in our possessions whilst we are alive. No, absolutely, Muhammad. And, you know, I remember you telling me uh, earlier on that, that, you know, you wanted to touch on a divorce. And, uh, you know, I, I was doing some reading up and uh, recently there were statistics, I don't know whether it's uh, uh, the updated one. It said the number of divorces were 18,208 and the number of marriages 106,499. I mean, uh, if you look at the population of this country, uh, it relatively has a, a, a very young population. Uh, but how seriously do these uh, people, I'm talking about uh, 
non-Muslims, how seriously do they take marriages, uh, uh, Muhammad? And uh, divorce is uh, prevalent among which group? If you you know if you have an inkling, uh, Muhammad. So, so just to give you a general understanding, I believe. Okay, I, I'm confident that the main reason for divorce is marriage. So maybe if we don't get married, we won't get divorced. But that's the culture of the West. <laughs> I'm pulling your leg here just to see if you're still alive or you're ready to fetch your coffee. But nonetheless, um, so let's put things into perspective. My parents and your parents didn't think twice about getting married when they were 16 years old. That was the culture of people. And they got married early in life to brave the winter. They stayed with their spouses till the very bitter end. You know, till the one spouse passed away, there was no thought or consideration of a divorce. And alhamdulillah, look at it. How, what did it survive on? First of all, the parties hardly knew each other, or in the case where they did know each other, they probably were cousins to the extent that's how they knew about each other, but they developed a love for each other after they got married. Today we have these so-called love marriages that don't even, the, the courting is longer than the actual marriage itself. And today the culture amongst the youth is don't get married because, you, and I'm saying specifically with the non-Muslims, and I've seen it happen, that the culture is not to get married because why must you buy the cow when you get the milk for free? Why must you buy the cow when you get the milk for free? That's the culture of people. And it comes with its own set of challenges. So, for example, once you get married, you tie yourself down in terms of finances and money. And if your spouse runs into financial problems, then it impedes on your finances. And people generally, you know, want to test drive the car and test drive the car and test drive the car without wanting to commit to marriage. So the culture is, we see amongst the youth, especially in other religious groupings, is that they live together for many years with the consent of the family, What's the consent of the community? And I find this unbelievable. I find it uh, so, 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 so peculiar for us as a Muslim person coming from a cultural and even amongst the Hindus, it was unheard of. Now it's becoming more popular in the community. It's becoming more widely acceptable. And we as Muslims, we know that this is haram. We should be staying away from each other until we get married. But slowly, slowly, shaitan creeps into our lifestyles. We're finding that today, youngsters are courting for years. They've become, uh, you know, they are like how, how they say they have house permission and they have certain permissions that they could even go away uh, for a few days. You know, this is unfortunately the ways of the West that are creeping into Islam. And I hope and I pray that everybody listens to it takes heed and cognizance and do what we needed to do in an effort to stem this from ever creeping into us as a Muslim community. So yes, people are getting married later in life. You're also finding that they're having fewer children because of that. You're also finding that they're putting their professions before that. You're also finding that they are not, uh, that they, there's more flexibility in the way they want to do things and how they want to conduct their lifestyle. And all of these things Team seems to have 
to be destructive in a marriage, you know, where there isn't that closely knit bond that you had, that our parents had. Today, youngsters are able to, especially with phones and social media, you know, um, this issue of having the opposite sex as acquaintances, friends, chat partners, part of social groups, this obviously is poison in a marriage and needs to be uh, needs needs to be stemmed at whatever rate it is. And as a spouse, as a loyal spouse, you know, stay away from these things. Do not give allow that your partner becomes even suspicious of anything that you do, because generally, these types of suspicions work very negatively in any marriage. And once a woman is suspicious or a spouse, a husband is suspicious about uh, with his spouse, he then becomes sometimes overly suspicious and overly cautious. So even if the wife needs to go to out to buy something, he then, you know, he, shaitan takes control of the situation. That's why the Quran says, Falat just so and do not spy on each other. And in the Bible, uh, 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 verily some types of suspicion is uh, is done is, um, is 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 actually sinful, and uh, we should be we should stay away from these things. And you know we don't want to be in a type of marriage where these things become overly suspicious and unnecessarily difficult because it just affects a person's uh, outlook in life and makes things difficult for spouses spouses to be natural and to be loyal and honest to each other. So yes. Um, you know, we're living in new times. We're living in a new generation where, of course, um, these things are, are, are taking, are transient and are changing right before our eyes. And we hope it, it takes, it, it doesn't enter our community and our Muslim community because verily it's very sad to see how the other religious groupings are already being affected by these efforts of shaitan. Tell you, we all focused, uh, Muhammad, uh, really giving us a brilliant uh, lesson uh, this evening. You know, I'm, I'm just going to read something for you that uh, you know I made note of. Uh, the median age of uh, the time of divorce uh, until recently was uh, 45 years for males and 41 years for females, indicating that an average at divorce uh, males were four years older than the divorced females. When analyzed by a population group, listen to this, Muhammad. Black African males had the highest medium, uh, median age of divorce, 46 years, uh, followed by whites, uh, 45 years, colored, uh, 43 years, and Indian or Asians, uh, 42 years. It seems like the 40-year itch getting uh, in between, Mohammed. What's your thoughts? There's actually a reason I found uh, why it actually comes to that is because we find that... Um, Early in your marriage, we look forward to having children. Even if you're in a bad marriage, you find that because you intend having children, you hope that the children would now be some sort of comfort and would just maybe uh, remove some of the issues between the spouses. So there isn't that constant, you know, uh, constant hankering or clinging on a spouse and making things difficult. You find that there's a thought process that if we have children, the marriage will improve. And yes, it sometimes does for a while. There is a temporary fix. But what happens is that as the children then start growing and developing, now what happens is that it's more convenient to stay together than to stay apart. If the, the parents are living together with the children in an unhappy marriage, the parents will pretend that everything is good for the sake of the children to grow up in a good environment rather than to be living in separate homes where everything is now double 
the, they, they're paying two different rentals or two different bonds. There's two different water and lights. There's two different food accounts. The children need to be shuttled between the mother and the father from time to time, maybe uh, a couple of times a week. And uh, this then just impedes and impacts on the natural growth of the family. So for sake of convenience, then the parties stay together. I don't know if, you, if you've seen it, but the parties stay together and then what you have what's called an empty nest syndrome after a few years. So an empty nest syndrome is that the children, once they're 16, 18, 20 years old, they either move out of the house because they go then to university or they find a job or they then get married. And then you find that it's the two, the two spouses are looking at each other supper time and wondering what happened to the last 20 years of our life. We're back where we started. The children grew up. They're living their lives. Now we have to sit and look at each other's faces till the day we die. I can't bear this. Shoot me now. So you find that um, at that age, in the 40s, and because the Indians generally had children in the, when they were 20 years old or around that age, you find at the age 42, now they're looking at each other's faces and the children are 20 years old and they moved on with their lives. And uh, I, I, I think that that's the reason why you find the predominance of divorces in that particular age groupings. It's because of the empty nest syndrome. I don't know, Shafat, if you've experienced it, if you come across it, and do you agree with this phenomenon? Well, I tell you, you know, you make uh, sense there, and uh, many, I, I have many friends that say, hey, you know what, chef, uh, the kids are gone. I've got a big palatial home, and they're not there anymore. I mean, we should have had more. And I said, ah, but you missed the boat. And I said, yeah, now, you know, because of the social media and all, maybe we can see them, but, you know, we can't uh, hug our grandchildren, we can't hold them, and so forth. And as you say, you know, the uh, uh, the husband and wife, is it more males are divorcing the females or are the females divorcing the males? How is it working here, Mohammed? I think that's just a matter of convenience. Uh, it's irrelevant to the courts who sets out on these things. But you find Monday mornings are generally the most busiest time for divorce lawyers. For some reason, the two days of the <laughs> spouses having to be with each other, without a doubt, without a doubt, if you especially involved with divorces, Monday morning is going to be your busiest time of the week because everything that was said and done over the weekend needs to be now be put on the attorney's table so that he knows what's happening. Um, <laughs> I think that uh, if, if there is an agreement between the spouses to divorce, you find that uh, they, they, it, it, it alleviates, obviates, and reduces the costs in many ways. Um, you find that, you know, they could agree on the children and division of the estates and, you know, some of the issues that needs to be addressed um, if it's done along those ways. So generally, and then, you know, who's, who should bring the application? Because the person who brings the application has to apply in front of the judge or the magistrate and he needs to explain what is it his reasons for getting divorced so generally the strongest spouse would do that the, the, the spouse that generally brings the application would need to pay for the most of the costs because they need to be uh, he needs obviously the summons needs to be prepared and served on the other spouse personally a divorce summons must be served personally on the defendant and then you know if there's the family court needs to do any investigations um, there's costs there may be costs involved legal costs involved in these types of things so yes i think that uh, these are considerations but the party should not be 
considered negatively because they brought the application. So, for example, if the husband brought the application against the wife, there they should not be any slight or any type of criticism. Why did the spouse bring it? That's generally just for the sake of convenience or more so maybe an attempt to frustrate the other party and to force them to the table. But I must say, I must say, after having been involved in divorces for many years, it's not always the case that the parties, the parties when they initiate the divorce, actually end up concluding it. You find many a times that there seems to be some sort of resolution and solution between the parties reached in terms of coming together again. Sometimes the Islamic, not sometimes, but always the Islamic solutions are always the better way to go. And sometimes when the parties take up the Islamic solution. So in, in other words, don't just jump to a divorce. There's other ways. You can reprimand your wife if you see her doing something wrong. You can chastise her lightly with that small miswak of yours. You could separate your beds from her. You could ask for her family members to meet with your family members and maybe find some sort of a solution there. You could even ask for the religious imam or mufti or somebody in the area or even a, a non-alim to come in and assist the family and assist the spouses in dealing with each other. And, and each of these remedies has a solution that may be long-lasting. So there may, there may be just the separation of the beds may give the other spouse an opportunity to rethink their position and say, I don't like this. I don't like to be away from my spouse. I can't bear not being with him 24 hours a day. So the separation for the last five days is unbearable. And I've learned my lesson and I believe I can change my, way, my ways in the following manner. And maybe the other spouse can consider that and also then be tolerant, be, uh, be, be, you know, make the necessary changes in each other's life so that they can be a successful marriage. Nobody loves the divorce. Surely the divorce comes with consequences. And I think sometimes the little known victims of the divorce are the little children that come out of these, these things with permanent scars and they don't tend to forget the, 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 the ugliness and the nastiness and the difficulty between the parents. So, yes, whilst all these things have an impact on the children, it sometimes is necessary to do it, but to do it in an amicable way instead of an acrimonious manner always has uh, positive and better results than the other. Absolutely. MashaAllah, Muhammad. And, uh, yes, Allah bless you for giving your time off uh, uh, this evening. Uh, I tell you, I enjoyed every second with you. Perhaps your parting words uh, before we let you go. Shishafat, you know, these impromptu discussions with you takes, tends to take its toll on myself. But I must thank you for giving me the opportunity never to sleep and to blink an eye when I'm in your presence. But uh, I hope once again there's been some faida and some benefit to myself, to yourself and to our general body of listeners out there. We wish you all the best. We wish you a, a blissful marriage, a marriage that's blessed with many children. So even if you have a huge home, the house can be filled with young children and there is a lot of baraka from Allah. Children are definitely a baraka in our lives. And once we have an opportunity to have grandchildren and to be part of that experience, it's a wonderful experience in itself. Alhamdulillah, I've been blessed to be a grandfather now a few months ago and it's a different experience compared to being a parent. You find that these the grandchildren are much more obedient. They don't deserve hiding as much as your children do. They actually You actually spoil them because they just 
tend to tug at your heartstrings and tend to make your life much more pleasant than it is. So yes, once again, uh, Jazakallah for having me on your show. It's always a pleasure to be with you and your esteemed station managers and your hosts. So Jazakallah khair. Once again, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And uh, may he, uh, our attorney, Muhammad Kovanya's uh, grandchildren be the coolness of his eyes. Time for us to go for the Isha Azan, and inshallah we will continue after that.